Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, senior editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Alberto Rizzoli, co-founder and CEO of V7. V7 is an AI-first software company that builds a high-quality image and video training platform for model and database management. Alberto returns to the program to examine larger use cases in foundational large language models and where these capabilities are achieving ROI across healthcare, retail, and the manufacturing sectors. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Alberto, so good to have you back on the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. So we want to spend this episode mining a few different use cases across industries. And a use case I know that we haven't talked enough about on this show is the potential for large language models to streamline labeling in life sciences and pharmaceuticals. Tell us about what you're seeing in this space. Yeah, absolutely. In in life sciences, there's a lot of imagery that is involved in drug discovery. It's involved in scientific research. And these images are particularly challenging because they are fast in object numbers. We can try to put maybe digital pathology in there, even though it branches almost into healthcare. But in digital pathology Mm -hmm. slides, there are thousands of cells, amongst which only a few can be cancerous and, and appear different. And what large models can do is detect these these cells or maybe use small models to detect these cells and reason through whether someone may have cancer or not. And in cellular biology and microscopy, there's also a lot of work that happens in segmenting cells, in detecting them over time. There's 3D microscopy as well as a challenge where foundation models can be used to automatically segment cells in 3D and ultimately reason through large corpuses of this microscopy data to make to make inferences that ultimately support a particular scientific thesis. It follows this model that we were talking about earlier, where a large model can look at large amounts of data. So these are many microscopy mm-hmm. slides, but they can use small models to count the cells inside these microscopy slides. By counting the cells across maybe 9,000 of these slides and classifying them, and then reading that output They can reason through things such as whether they're duplicating at the expected rate based on a drug that is administered or based on a particular Mm -hmm. expected output. And I know in the last episode, we were making a, a bit of a delineation, maybe not so much, you know, harder objective, but just a delineation between the kinds of workflows that would need to be more automated and workflows that would need more humans in the loop. And just in the few examples that you just cited, creating radiology co-pilots, automating laboratory microscopy. I mean, in those areas, it seems, especially where you need the expertise and you need the doctor in the room, those will be at least more co-pilot driven and and more human based workflows and, you know, bringing out the most skills of of those experts. Whereas labeling accuracy, if I can make a comparison to financial services or legal, that would be a little bit more like intelligent document processing, a little bit more automated. Do I have that differentiation correct? Ultimately, it's all about labeling data. In a strange way, AI, all it does is it imitates labels. So right. the act of labeling data is kind of like dropping a piece of knowledge on a on a, gotcha. an image or on a document or whatever the medium might be for AI to eat and imitate us a bit more. And once it eats enough of this data, it's able to then perform a task 
that is encoded within the amount of this data. What's changed recently is that AI can be increasingly more self-supervised. That means that it figures out its own label. It doesn't need your help often. And this can be as simple as it watches a YouTube video and it finds the label in the subtitles. It reads the subtitles and applies them to the image and understands that there is a connection between them and then Mm -hmm. Bob's your uncle. It's very similar to how early kind of image generation models were using the caption, the alternative caption that is used for accessibility to understand what's inside an image and therefore regenerate these kind of images similar to to how DALI was trained. And then the use of co-pilots and the use of these models that are ultimately giving suggestions to to doctors, one might think that they're not, you know, it can be as simple as just just entering chat experience with a doctor. But we need to think of what their day-to-day experience looks like. And this, some may find a parallel in their own products, in their own services. I just came back from two weeks in the hospital where I broke my leg, I broke a femur. And I had the fortune of mingling with the AI folks at this, this large hospital in Italy. And they took me in to show me how surgeons perform operations, what kind of co-pilot experiences they're looking forward to, what AI providers are already working with. And the types of skills that these models are going to be able to do is quite fast. It's not just conversing with people. It's also suggesting them in the same view that a surgeon is looking at where the instruments should go. What type of alignment do two bones have or which parts of a, of a cardiac mm-hmm. ultrasound are corresponding to another view that they might be seeing from another instrument? And surprisingly, sometimes it can be as easy as suggesting what is the next step to do in a surgery. These are surgeons that have been working for hours and they need to complete a 17, 20 stage surgery. And having just something that can be a software assistant there can be a godsend. And so it's very important to understand how these experts are already performing the work and then asking them what are the exact small tweaks here and there that these large models can help you assist with. Absolutely. You you were bringing up self-labeling, and I, I have to take it that's definitely not an out-of-the-box capability for any any kind of software. That sounds like it needs a lot of development. It needs a lot of the internal organization to be lockstep in making sure those systems are accurate. Can you give us an idea of at what point you'd be able, uh, an organization would be able to build a, a self-labeling capability, or does that come out of the box? Yeah. Self-labeling is useful. The the self-supervision is useful if you have the ability to to scrape a large amount of data, usually from the internet or from a repository that you have, and you simply don't have time to label it manually because the output of it is not critical. And believe it or not, the creation of these large language models was used by scraping the entirety of the internet, but then there's, there's a whole lot of labeling that happens on the other side to make sure that these things are not racist, that they don't suggest self-harm or terrible things. And so there's an element of the self-supervision that can be done to dump a lot of information inside the brain and reach that hypothetically 5% accuracy that we were discussing before. So something that can fool a human that they're human, but they're not particularly a great human. You wouldn't trust them with right. your child or with your job or with your, with your liver or transplant. And so then the challenge of labeling is taking the best and brightest people and having them perform tasks that the AI can learn from so that they can abandon this feral state that they've learned from the internet and start imitating that of these, these tasks that are ultimately completed by humans. And it's, it's always a big task. It tends to be in the Llama 2 report that Meta released, they spent $8 million on compute and then $20 million on human feedback. 
So it's still a very expensive part of it, but it is what ultimately makes the accuracy difference. If you have the compute, if you have the data, then the thing you should be investing in is the data quality. How well do the tasks that I've labeled represent the best possible work that needs to be done in this detection task, in this information completion task, in this question answering task or whatever it might be? Yeah. And it's illuminating that, you know, not even, you know, your biggest big tech firms really can just, you know, self rely or on at least the self labeling aspect. And they'll they'll still need, you know, the human expert feedback to really refine these models. Turning to retail, I know we've talked a lot on this show about retail use cases and personalization and customer experience, a lot having to do with what happens at checkout, either in the store or online. But let's move to other areas of the business. Tell me about the use cases that you're seeing in this area for training data. Yeah, retail is unique because there are millions of products out there, millions of different SKUs, millions of different appearances. We're used to cases in, say, computer vision where you have to detect a car, a motorcycle, and then you can build a self-driving car. And it doesn't matter what motorcycle it is, you just know it's an obstacle. Retail, you need to know a particular SKU, and maybe it's the Christmas edition of that stock-keeping unit, of that can of 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 soft drink or whatever it might be. So it's a very different area of challenges. The data amounts are very, very vast. And so the infrastructure challenges become big. So you wanna make sure that you have a data infrastructure from the tooling that you're using to the way it's stored that is up to spec, that you understand that you cannot classify a million things. You need to use other techniques like retrieval to make sure you're detecting the right product. And then explore what use cases does your business want to to implement and whether there's an off-the-shelf solution for it or not. In many cases, even off-the-shelf solutions need to be tuned to your data, to your store's appearance if you're doing autonomous checkout or if you're doing out-of-stock detection in retail. Or even if you are trying to revolutionize your online retail experience and suggesting your products to the user, remember that these tools still need to be tuned to the data that you have available. Absolutely. And I know when we bring up at least retail use cases that have broad crossover with manufacturing, is there essential like back office or warehouse functions, use cases like autonomous inventory, planogram analytics? It really seems as though that the lines between retail and manufacturing writ large, especially for the warehouse are blurring. How, in your view, is AI changing the way that we're moving products in these spaces to blur those lines? Yeah, because if you think about it, warehouses are just giant retail stores. They're just a little bit more boring in appearance. Right, that's uh, it. <laughs> but it's still people and sometimes forklifting objects. So the technology that is used in autonomous checkout is very similar to that that is used in autonomous warehouses or semi-autonomous warehouses. There's a lot that can be done. There's, there's a lot of companies that are changing the way their warehouses work by either integrating robotics that can pick objects or simply suggesting to, to people where to go and pick the items that they're looking for and and adding guides to the warehouses themselves. We're also seeing the devices in the warehouses themselves becoming safer. So forklifts are now integrating autonomous navigation capabilities, not to replace the driver, but actually to stop accidents. So they're they're effectively ADAS capabilities because the forklifts are quite dangerous, actually. And they can knock over very tall shelves of objects. So there's quite a lot of of connection in between them. The advantage of warehouse, like many business-focused applications that happen away from the consumer, is that you can actually agree with your users on how 
the space should be laid out and how the pickup of objects can be done. Whereas autonomous checkout will always have these these challenges. For example, a per, you, right. you can never predict consumer behavior. A person would be picking up all of their objects using their arms and then just swinging around on a shelf and, and picking up 17 packs of chips at, in one go. And good luck for AI to do that. That's something you need to send to a human in the loop. So there's always an advantage there. And then finally, there's other small tasks that can be detected and and effectively turn into co-pilots, things like depalletization and doing all the scanning work for routine tasks, such as moving objects in and out of a warehouse. These are things that can be done by cameras or by nearby robots to effectively reduce the number of steps that humans have to do when they are carrying goods or when they're lifting heavy goods, and then they have to go and pick up a, a scanner and scan every single box before they can go back on the truck. Absolutely. Now, I, I know that manufacturing and retail are in such close proximity. They're almost like sister sectors in, in the grand scheme of things. We don't tend to think of a lot of crossover necessarily between manufacturing and healthcare. And I think those data perspectives that you put in your last answer of what is a warehouse besides a, you know, a retail shop floor with less checkouts and is more boring. In the same way, we can almost look at critical infrastructure inspections in manufacturing the same way that we look at diagnostic imagery in healthcare. Tell me a little bit more about critical infrastructure inspections. Where is the data entering the process to solve problems for manufacturing leaders here? Yeah, infrastructure is expensive, important, and needs to be kept in in good shape. And what we've observed are companies that have been using our platform, for example, to detect anything from cracks in concrete and infrastructure to rust patches and sending quadrupedal robots like the Boston MX Spot robot to go and inspect energy infrastructure and then report all this data back to the mothership. And in the mothership, AI is detecting all these anomalies Similar to how radiologists would detect anomalies in the human body in a scan effectively. And then you can use large models to produce a health report for this infrastructure. So whether it's drones overlooking solar panels to make sure that the the hail has not cracked them and producing a damage report, this can all be done by AI today. And these are services that can be added to other products that can be then sold to energy companies or the energy companies themselves developing AI to protect this infrastructure. And there's a bit of both. There's some really innovative startups that have been observing this infrastructure and then creating reports back to to their clients that are on par with what an analyst would do by by just going there manually. It's only much faster and, and much less expensive to use cameras and robots to do so. Absolutely. And I'll say this from just, you know, formulating the the outline with with your team at, at V7. I'm continually surprised at where I see broad industry crossover, maybe between seemingly under, you know, non-related industries like manufacturing and healthcare. And I'll think I'm going out on a limb by drawing the comparison. And then I hear about manufacturing, you know, building managers referring to it as a health report. And then I realize I'm behind the line. They already know this is exactly like the health, like healthcare workflows, and they're already embracing that, and we're almost all catching up in a way. We we do see it all, even in healthcare. Recent experience yeah, I had, indeed. we had the chief medical officer of Athena Health, Dr. Nelly Jessel, on the show, and I had said, you know, and I was tiptoeing all around it. It was like it sounds like a lot of what you guys are doing are just 
customer experience, like what they do in financial services. You're just bringing it to healthcare. It's almost like patient experience. And I'm saying it like, oh, these people probably don't want to be compared to banks. You know, like patients are not customers. Better not say that too loudly. And then, you know, they'll come right back to me and say, no, we embrace it now. We call it patient journeys, patient experiences. They're already crossing the Rubicon. So at least to, to help out our audience and show where this is happening, it's very illuminating. Alberto, we've had you for yeah. two very wonderful and illuminating episodes. Thank you so much for being with us today. And in the last episode, love to have you back. Thank you, Matt. It's been great. Have a great rest of your day. Wrapping up today's episode, I I just want to give Alberto a shout out for being so willing to draw these comparisons across industries. I think it's especially most apparent in what we're seeing in retail and manufacturing. These are, of course, adjacent sectors. And as Alberto pointed out, there really isn't a big difference between a floor plan for a Target and what's going on in your average warehouse, except for the Target has a checkout lane. And obviously there are different challenges, you know, warehouse workers are not customers, warehouse workers are not customer service representatives that walk the shop floor of a target. Those are the big differences in what we're seeing. But from a data perspective and in terms of that physical data collection, these tasks are largely the same from a technological standpoint. And I think as we start to look at problems, regardless of sector, but in terms of how data processes these problems and offers solutions, I think we're going to see a lot more cross-sector use cases, and I think we're going to see a lot more capabilities being seen in different lights. And I think also we're going to see these skills start to be more transferable across these sectors in ways that, you know, they don't need to be adjacent for it. Not You don't necessarily need to be going from retail to manufacturing. That example that I mentioned in critical infrastructure inspections being very similar to the data gathering process of diagnostic imagery in healthcare. Now, of course, I am not implying that folks can just be one day transferable from the healthcare space to the manufacturing space, especially in healthcare. A lot of that data needs to be processed by experts who have spent a lot of time in medical school building that expertise. But I think as you start to see those technological capabilities take hold, people start noticing these similarities from the offset of the technology itself and the expertise that's entrenched in that technology, maybe you'll start to see more transferable skills. And I think that'll be very, very exciting to watch over the next half decade at least. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast.